Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. Dr. Francis Schaeffer exemplifies that kind of love in all four dimensions as I have come to know him over a period of some 15 or 16 years now as a friend. But I think that more than anyone else that I have known personally, he has done more to teach Christians to love God with their minds. And I think that's terribly needed in our day and time. It's terribly needed in evangelical circles. We haven't produced the kind of scholarship that has captured the minds of men. Dr. Schaefer not only is a great scholar and student of the word, he has taught believers to love the word and to apply it to every discipline of life. And we're grateful for his ministry. We're grateful for the impact that it has made on countless thousands of students that have come through Labrie, the Labrie Fellowship in Switzerland. But we're even more grateful for the impact that has been made on many minds, Christians, non-Christians alike, and has brought many of them to Christ. And this is the influence of his writings that have been committed to print in more recent years. It seems when that great intellectual favorite of evangelicals, C.S. Lewis, was taken home to glory, that marked about the time that Dr. Francis Schaeffer went into print with his first book. And his books have been a source of enrichment. They've stimulated those who have read them to think and to apply their faith to the problems and the situations that we encounter in our world and to challenge them to enter the disciplines that evangelicals have turned aside from too often and allowed secular humanism, which we heard about last night from Jim Kennedy, to take over. He's a man that cares for people. He loves his neighbor as himself. And out of his busy schedule, when our church left the denomination, somehow he heard about this and wrote me a beautiful note and then invited me in to talk with him last May when he was up for the Covenant Seminary graduation exercises. A wonderful person. I hope that so many of you have an opportunity to talk with him personally. We're grateful for his presence here tonight. God bless you as you speak. Dr. Schaefer.
I just say it's a real pleasure to be here and to be with all of you. But specifically, I am speaking to the commissioners of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and those who are the members of that denomination. My theme tonight is to be in God's church in the midst of the 20th century confusion. And I will begin by asking a question. Why study the Bible? Why preach the Bible? Why obey the Bible? Why sacrifice to be faithful to the Bible in ecclesiastical, personal, and civic life? Why should we do those things? The answer is the first, is first, in the existence of the Judeo-Christian, infinite, personal God who objectively exists. He does objectively exist, whether anyone would think he was there or not. He doesn't exist because we think he exists. The basis of all things rests in the fact that this personal, infinite God really objectively exists, whether anyone would think so or not. And then, secondly, that he has created everything else. Everything else has been created by the infinite personal God who objectively exists. There is no more important sentence that has ever been written than the Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are very distinctly in the plural and encompasses everything except God himself. The second verse that was read in our scripture reading comes from Revelation and is a tremendous verse and is happily properly translated in the New International Version. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and they have their being. It's absolutely tremendous. I challenge you as you read through your Bible that you see how many times in the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament, the first thing that is stated about God is that he is the creator. That's the beginning time after time in the great prophetic messages. It's an interesting thing that in this New International Translation, quite properly, they have used the expression that they have their being because this is the terminology our generation is using of asking of why does anything exist. If God did not so exist, the Bible would not be worth studying. If God did not exist, the Bible would not be worth studying. However, he does not only exist, but in his love he has spoken to the creatures made in his own image, that is, people, men and women. He so spoke from the creation of man, and in my manuscript here I have man with a capital M equaling all people, male and female, 
Then after the fall, he continued to give verbalized communication. After the fall, man needed such communication more than ever. The communication was God's truth given in verbalized form. God had made man a language communicating being, and God's communication was in language that could be understood. And the content of what was communicated was truth. And again, here in my notes, I have truth with a great big capital T, and if you know anything about editorial work, when you mean capital in your uh, writing, you put three lines under and it means this is really a cap. Notice, what God communicated in his loving communication was truth. Truth with a capital T. It was truth concerning total reality, not just religious truth. It's truth concerning total reality. This truth which God gave was the key to understanding all reality. You cannot understand anything about reality without the truth that God has so lovingly communicated. First, truth about the great final reality, God himself. Second, truth about the universe. In fact, without this truth which the Creator gave about the universe, man being finite, though finding out many details about the universe, never can understand why anything does exist or why what exists has the order that it has. Man being finite can never find this out, and we would not know if it wasn't for the communication of the truth that God has given us. Thirdly, the truth God communicates is also truth about man. Why people are truly great and wonderful. People are truly great and wonderful. There's nothing like people in their creativity and in so many other wonderful things. Man, why man is truly great and wonderful. Why people, as made in God's image, are creative. And the greatest creativity of all creativity is including that great creativity of why people can affect history by their choices. That's the greatest of all creativity, not art, spelled with a capital A, as much as I love good art. Then God's communication also tells why people are now so flawed with sin and cruelty. God tells us it is because they revolted against God, turning away from their only adequate reference point, and that is God himself. Thus, God's communication tells us uh, that man's problem is not because people are small and finite and limited, but because they have sinned. And thus, true, they have true moral guilt before God. Not just psychological guilt feelings, the way many of the psychologists would tell us today, or many theologians too, unhappily. Not just psychological guilt feelings, but true moral guilt before the God who objectively exists. So we know why man is wonderful, and we know what's wrong with him, and what his difficulty is. And God's communication tells us these things not as a vague system of thought, of sort of a well-balanced Greek concept of thinking, but rooted in objective history. 
That history was shown in, Mount, in, in Moses saying after Sinai, you saw, you heard. I don't know how many of you saw the uh, fifth episode of whatever happened to the human race when I was on top of Mount Sinai and pointed out the absolutely uniqueness of the Judeo-Christian religion, that it's rooted in history, that Moses can say you don't have to be afraid and you're to obey God because of what you saw and heard. This rooted in historyness is also shown and demonstrated when Christ said after the resurrection, touch me and watch me eat. Truth, not a vague system of thought alone, but rooted in history. And that history, which God communicated, is also everything recorded from the statement in Genesis 1-1. Onward, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a vague system of thought, but rooted in space, time, history. So God's verbal communication included the truth about total reality, about God himself, about the universe, about man, and all this truth related to the flow of history. And then, in due time, God caused this verbal communication to be put into written form. We do not know the mechanics of how the writers kept their full personalities so that their own characteristics shown, showed forth in the various books. And yet, what they wrote was absolutely without mistake. We do not know the mechanics, but the Bible and Christ tell us this was the case. Thus, the Bible is God's written communication in language which tells us of the universe of man as he was intrinsic, intrinsically and is intrinsically in God's image, yet now fallen, and it tells us of God's solution to man's true moral guilt in the substitutionary death of Christ. It is, in short, God's communication without error in all these areas. What a gracious gift of God to people, to men and women, is this book. What a gracious gift. Without this errorless, without this errorless communication, many basic questions would be without any possible answers, and our generation is finding that out. They have no answers. Uh, for the great questions of life. Without this errorless communication from God in written form, people have no answer as to any me final meaning to life, including their own and our own individual lives. From God in written form, human relationships of any kind, including the male-female relationship, would be without any basis for the fulfillment of the aspirations of truly human relationship that all human beings have. All human beings have this, but without what we're told in this book, there would be no basis for such, for any fulfillment of real human relationships. Without this errorless written communication from God to man, Nature would be reduced to only a pragmatic quarry for man's selfish use. Modern man has found no real meaning to nature except that pragmatic use. Modern study of ecology only sees nature as a quarry for man's pragmatic use. 
without this earless written communication from God to man, the aspirations for beauty would really not matter. Nor would there be any distinction between, be the beauty, uh, between beauty and the ugly and the destructive. None at all. Modern man cannot find any real basis for these things. And finally, who has turned away from the Bible, that is, and finally, and very important indeed in our day, and I would urge you to listen to this with care, without this errorless communication from God to man, there would be no basis for law. No basis for law. Law would be only the relative sociological good that some small group, like the Supreme Court, decided would be for the good of society at that given moment. In short, without the errorless communication of God to people in written form, we would have no knowledge of total reality, and not only would we not know how to get to heaven, but human life would have no real meaning now. Now, turn it over. With this errorless communication from God to man, life suddenly is not absurd. Human life has unique value and dignity, as people are made in the image of God. There is a basis for values, a basis for morals, and a basis for law, which is not purely arbitrary once you have this earless communication. With this earless communication, human relationships are more than merely the biological. We are not reduced only to the level of the slug. There is something more in human relationships. The fulfillment, the fulfillment uh, of the longing of all people for communication and continuity. It's one of the great longings of people. I'll never forget a great plaque on Sils Marie in Switzerland uh, with a quote from Nietzsche on it, in which Nietzsche, the great cynic, nevertheless wrote and said that every human pleasure longs for eternity. He's not wrong, he's right. It's one of the saddest words that has ever been written by anybody that ever wrote. But with this errorless communication, suddenly there is a meaning to communication and equally uh, to continuity in life. Continuity rests on, and communication rests on nothing less than the basic reality that the personal God himself exists. That's why all the rest has meaning. Take that away and there is no meaning. With this book, this book, beauty is different from ugliness. And creativity is different from the destructive. With this book, human creativity is seen as the reflection of God being the great creator. With this book, law has a base in God's law. And we're not left to the mercy of tyranny which so much of the world faces today, and our own country increasingly faces. What is this book? And why study it, preach it, and obey it? It is the earliest communication of God to people in written form. It tells us how to get to heaven through Christ, but it also gives us the answers to all the questions that make human life worthwhile. Take this book away, and there's no answer to any of the great questions that make human life 
worth living. Why should we study the Bible? For no lesser reason than it gives us the answer to the total of reality and the answer to every one of the really big, human, important questions of life, as well as telling us the way to heaven through Christ and his death. This, then, is why we should study and obey the Bible. Out of loyalty to the living God who gave us this wonderful book of his own revelation, we have the basis, the reason, of leaving a denomination which has come under the control of a liberal theology at the two power centers of the theological seminaries and the bureaucracies of the denomination. This book gives us the authority to do that. Faithfulness to the Bible should be the chasm of our denominational fellowship and then our fellowship with other Christians. That faithfulness to the Bible should be the dividing point. It should be the chasm. And then on this side of that chasm, we should practice our own distinctives, such as being Presbyterian, Reformed in doctrine, Lutheran, Baptist, or whatever they be. But they are not the chasm. The chasm is the Bible of those who are faithful to the Scriptures in contrast to those who are not. The distinctions are important, but they are not the chasm. The chasm is the Bible-believing Christian versus those who are less than faithful in their stand for the Bible. That is the chasm. Now, to the second point. But after we stand for the Bible on this high and uncompromising level, we then must live under the Bible. It's no use talking about standing for the Bible if you don't live under the Bible. Once we realize what this book is, we must truly live under its teaching. That is so for personal salvation. We all know that, I suppose, most of us here anyway. You can hear the gospel to doomsday. But if you don't bring yourself by the grace of God under the gospel and under the work of Christ, you're simply not saved. It isn't enough just to know it. You must act on it. But that isn't true only for conversion. It's true for every single thing of life. If we hold this high view of the scripture, the next step is we must live under it. This is true, uh, however, for all of life. It is true in rejecting false teaching about the Bible itself. It has a negative aspect. To live under the Bible means to reject the false teaching that comes to us from the secular world, but also, from, unhappily, from the theological world about the Bible. But it's also equally true in our personal lives. You are in a period of great danger. You're taking a clear stand theologically. But you must realize that if you think then you have arrived and it's finished, you really are in slippery ground. Because it is not only enough to take a stand against these false teachings, but we must live in our personal lives under the scripture as well as in our ecclesiastical lives. Living under the Bible means the rejection of today's standards of relativity. For example, it means holding to God's teaching against unbiblical divorce. I'll make it very practical. To live under the scripture means taking a stand against unbiblical divorce, even if this is, unhappily today, absolutely epidemic in the church, and sometimes not only unhappily in the liberal church, but in 
those that would call themselves Bible-believing Christians as well. Living under the Bible means acquiring our money and spending our money with compassion. These things are very, very practical. Notice what I've said. Not only how you spend your money, pardon me, but how you earn your money. Do you earn your money with compassion? As well as spend your money with compassion? Because if we don't, we simply are not living under the scriptures. And in our day, it means realizing that to live under the teaching of the Bible includes carrying the lordship of Christ into the area of our lives as citizens, even if that causes us to stand against the whole flow of our day in society and even in government. If you don't do these things, you're not living under the scriptures. No matter how high of you you say you have the scriptures. It means realizing that indeed, as we said at first, Bible study is nothing if the final reality, the infinite personal God, does not objectively exist. And it means realizing that if he does exist, that we are pitted against the culture about us. As that culture is so largely presented in our schools, in the media uh, today. That is, the culture that says the final reality is not the living God, but the final reality is merely material or mass energy shaped by pure chance, and that's final reality. That's what's being taught on every side today in many, many different forms. Unless we realize that this is a total enemy and we must stand against it in all its forms and regardless of the cause, we're not living under the scriptures. We simply are not. Why? Because we are denying the first point of the scriptures, and that is that the final reality is the infinite personal God who exists. We deny the first point when we allow this other final view of reality to be spread abroad across all our country and in many other ways. I would just like to say at this particular point, throw it in, that I've just written a new book, and the new book is the, uh, it's called A Christian Manifesto, and it speaks of the uh, Christian's relationship to government and how far we should obey the government, what about the Christian and civil disobedience. It's going to come out, the Lord willing, in November uh, by, the, by Crossway Press. I'll just put it in because it fits here, though I don't want to bring it in too much in detail in tonight's message. But all these things bear upon the fact of whether we're living under the Scriptures after we say we obey the Scriptures. Now, going a step further, God has given us certain offices. Please notice the word offices. It's my own choice but I think it's a proper term. Well, it has been used in history too. God has given us certain offices in this fallen world to hold back the natural drift toward chaos in this fallen world. The fallenness of the world would lead to absolute chaos if there wasn't certain restraining factors. And God in the scripture has set forth certain offices which he has given in order to resist this drift toward natural chaos in a fallen world. These offices are the relationship of husband and wife, parent and child, church officer and church member, employer and employee, and the state and the citizen. And you'll find in the Pauline writings that five of them are presented always together, and then the state and the citizen is added in, different place, in a different place in, Pauline's, in, Paul, in the Pauline writings. Now notice, it is not the person who has the authority, but the office. 
And when anyone who holds these offices go against the content of God's teaching, they abrogate their authority. I wish every Christian would understand that. When anyone who holds any of these offices I have named goes against the law of God, they abrogate their authority. They no longer have proper authority. Hence, when the officers of a denomination condone and command uh, what is contrary to God's law, there is not only the right, but the duty to disobey them. It isn't only a right, it's a duty to disobey them when they abrogate their authority. You have done that with tears and leaving a denomination or denominations that have for years shown that they or it has no intention of reform and has constantly gone further and further from God's word. That's what you've done you who are commissioners, and you who are members of this denomination. In passing, I would say that the duty to disobey any holder of an office who has abrogated his or her authority by commanding what would contradict God's word includes also the duty to disobey the state when it commands what is contrary to the word of God and therefore abrogates its authority. None of these offices have been given autonomous authority. God has not shared his authority with any of the officers. It is not God and Caesar. It is God and Caesar. And that's the way the church has always seen it, and that's the way the Bible sets it forth. None of these offices have been given autonomous authority. All are under God's law. Our generation, with its denial of God's revelation, has no basis for any absolute. All is relative. And this has permeated the church uh, as well as the state. The liberal theology has been so permeated, but so has much of the Christian's life in the church. I've mentioned unbiblical divorce. I'd repeat it because I think it's a tremendously uh, great problem in the church in our own day, unbiblical divorce. There are those who would say they honor the scripture and yet church leaders and leading Christian authors get unbiblical divorces and go on with they and with the, whole, with the church acting as though it makes no difference. They go right on. That's not living under the scripture. It does make a difference. It makes a difference to God because it contradicts his law. It also makes a difference to the next generation in their possibility of knowing biblical marriage. And also outside of the church, it makes a difference to the integrity and credibility of the church before a watching world. If we say we believe one thing and hold to the scriptures and then we don't live upon it, our credibility is gone. Why should anybody listen to us? Why listen to our doctrinal disputes if there's nothing in our life that shows we take what's taught seriously? There is a God-given legal circle for marriage, for the parent-child relationship and all the other uh, offices uh, that we are to live within. There is a proper legal. Uh, the proper legal circle is that which is commanded by God, and we should live within it. However, and I would urge this on you again, please to listen with care. However, God does not give his laws to limit us. 
We constantly hear this. Aren't you limited by God's laws? That isn't the reason God gives us laws, basically, just to limit us. The one who made us in his image gives us his laws as based on his character, and thus they are for our best good. Now, we should keep God's laws because he commands them, but we must realize that the same God who made us in his image has given the law on the basis of his character. And that being so, the law that he has given to us is for that which is for our best good as we were originally created in his image. Now, in our sinfulness, often it limits us, but the purpose is not to limit us. The purpose is to bring us in line with that which we were created for in the first place and have fulfillment. The, thus, therefore, we find uh, that there are these proper legal circles, but the end is not a bare legal circle, but to develop living personal relationships within those circles. And there are certain marriages, surely, that there's never any infidelity, and yet there's no personal relationships. That isn't what God needs. There is to be the legal circle, but being the legal circle, then the personal relationships are to be developed within the proper legal circles. Now, this is true for our relationship to God himself. Uh, we, cannot, we, cannot, uh, we cannot be in the right legal relationship with God without coming in the right way, and that is depending only and solely on the finished work uh, of the Lord Jesus and his shed blood, who takes away our punishment then we are in the proper legal relationship with God. But the end is not just having our legal guilt removed by conversion, but then to go on in a living personal relationship with the living God as we were created as personal, as he made us to be unique in his image. The finite personal creature, as personal in contrast to the impersonal, as made in the image of God, is called to have a personal relationship to the infinite personal creator. Now, that is the end of the matter. The proper legal solution by the death of Christ makes the end of the matter possible. And that's what it was all about. This is to be true in all of life, the proper legal circle, but within that, a living personal relationship, husband and wife, parent and child, employee and employee, church officer and church member. It isn't to be just legal. There is to be then within the proper legal circles as given by God, a development of personal relationships, something that the stones cannot have and animals do not have, but we can have as made in the image of the personal God. God has given a hierarchy in the husband-wife relationship. But sinful men have extended that far beyond the biblical norm in two ways. First of all, it has been sinfully extended and wrongfully extended in the hierarchy that is set forth as the proper legal circle in marriage, uh, as though all men were superior to all women. Now, that is not so, to put it very mildly. It just is not so. And much of the extreme feminist uh, movement today is a reaction against this false extension. The hierarchy in marriage is only that. It is not to, to extend, it does not extend beyond that uh, to all men and women. I'd say listen with care. Listen with care. 
People have sinfully extended the biblical concept of the hierarchy far beyond anything that the Bible says should be there. And also, it is extended often sinfully in the home itself. If I forget the couplet by which Paul sets forth these things, what does God say? Wife, obey the husband. But quickly now, quickly, on to the second level of the couplet, or you miss the whole point. And husband, love that wife the way Christ loves the church. Forget one half of the couplet of the other, and the whole thing's shot. The whole thing's completely, completely out of bounds. Each of us loves to stress our side of the couplet. <laughs> Every one of us. And when we do, the whole thing is forgotten, the balance is forgotten and the whole thing is spoiled. It's parallel to parents and children. Raising children is very difficult in our generation. Parents love to say, children, obey your parents. Remember the other half of the couplet? And I'll give it to you what I think is the proper, Greek trans proper English translation from the Greek for the 20th century. And that is, fathers, don't drive your children up the wall. And if we say the first without saying the second, we really are completely out of line with what God is teaching in his word. Now, returning to marriage, we must fight for the balance uh, that is given in the scripture if we are to live under the scripture and resist the terrible pressure in our society today against all marriage, against all personal continuity and personal relationships. The pressures are terrible in our generation uh, against all continuity of personal relationships. They're awful. The TV, the movies, the novels. They're awful, awful pressures. Now, if we're going to resist these pressures, we must live under the balance that the Scripture gives. And not only the husband and wife, but the parent child and all the rest. Living under the teaching of this wonderful book, is not easy in this day of total breakdown in church, state, and society. But it is not only right, it is the only way to be fulfilled as God made us, as he created us in his own image, uh, as personal beings. Let me repeat. It is not easy to live on the basis of this wonderful book today. But it is the only way not only to do what is right, but the only way to resist the terrible pressures that are against all continuity of personal relationships and all the things that make human life beautiful and worthwhile. There is no other way to be fulfilled except living on the basis of this book. People come constantly to us in Lovebird and they want to be fulfilled. They want to be fulfilled. Great question, who am I? They don't know who they are, how to be fulfilled. Great egoism, I want to be fulfilled. There is no way to be fulfilled except living on the balances set forth in this book. It is not a case of choosing between the orthodoxy of scripture and loving Christ or personal fulfillment. That is not supposed to be the choice. Without the proper base, beginning with the objective existence of the personal infinite God and then his errorless communication in this book, there is no base for loving Christ or for fulfillment. But equally, only to hold to orthodoxy, including a claimed high view of this book, without living under it, neither honors God nor brings fulfillment. There's two things we've got to resist. 
to give up the orthodoxy of the existence of God and this marvelous communication, earless communication in this book. But on the other hand, we mustn't just hold to this theoretically and not live under it. This, because then we're neither honoring God nor will we be fulfilled. The tension is not between orthodoxy and fulfillment. The two should, must fit together or there's neither. And I do believe that the Bible gives us just two points where there is a male-female hierarchy. And both have been mistreated in our sinfulness. I have mentioned the marriage relationship and the need for balance. The same, I believe, is true in the office of the church elder. This has been mistreated, extended, and misused, as has the relationship of husband and wife. If anything worse, that certainly is bad. I'll give you an example. Lobby has members as its board. We don't have any board in any home country. Our board is made up of active workers in Lobby who have been in there for a long time from the various branches. Now, these are made up of these active workers from the various branches of Labrie in the various countries. Labrie is not a church in the New Testament sense of the church. It just is not. In this setting, we see no problem of having both men and women members, about half and half, as a matter of fact. I don't see any problem. That isn't what the Scripture's talking about. Scripture's talking about, as I see it, elders. Another example out of my own family, Edith, my wife, not only writes her books for men as well as women, but she speaks for both men and women. I don't see any problem in this. That isn't what the Scripture's emphasizing. That isn't the point. All these things have been made terrible extensions that have made this something uh, absolutely far beyond anything which the Scripture says. I could give a long list. I know at least one person here would be reminded of the work of Henrietta Mears. I'm very much reminded. And I would add Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you know Amy Carmichael, but she's wonderful. A woman who went to India and changed the whole missionary work of India. Uh, I could think, uh, I would think personally that Amy Carmichael is equal uh, with Hudson Taylor and Mueller in teaching us a walk and how to walk by faith. But I must say, and I hope in this setting you will bear with me, uh, that in the church eldership, I do believe the Bible says clearly that the eldership, just that now, should be made up of men. I would add, though, that I would equally insist, please, again, listen to my balance, I would equally insist that the eldership is the only place this is applied and not to all the extra extensions which have been added as though women are less in the body of Christ. This has been completely pulled out of balance. Completely pulled out of balance. Think of the women God has used in his work. Think of the women God has used over all the years in such a rich way as to put the men to absolute shame absolute shame, not across the mission fields, but in many, many places. But I would gently say they did not need to be elders to be in such a force in the church of Christ. I would come back to La Brie and say the balance that we have found there has proved a good and profitable one, uh, just as, in some poor way, Edith and I, in case you don't know, Edith's my wife, I guess you know by now, uh, that in some poor way, Edith and I have consciously struggled to keep the balance in our home. And among other things, that conscious struggle to keep the balance in our home has meant, uh, and very, very much meant, 
that I have tried, again, I would say very carefully in some very poor way, to see that her talents of writing and speaking have had full play. I would say I've tried to work at that job. It's a part of loving my wife and who she is with her talents. And uh, Edith has been used certainly as much as myself, I think, in her writings and her speaking. I've really tried to work at that in the male-female hierarchy of our home, and so has she. We've worked at it poorly, I would say, but we've tried in prayer and everything we know how to work at it consciously. It is important in our day when church and state are bending God's laws to fit the culture rather than judging the rapidly shifting culture by the Bible to find a balance in regard to life in all the offices. Don't you see what's happening in our day? What's happening in our day is instead of the Bible being used to judge the culture, the Bible is being bent to fit the rapidly changing culture. And that's what's occurring. And in such a day as this, it's imperative uh, that in, we work uh, to show this is not the case uh, wherever we can. If you do feel that to have women elders is not contrary to Scripture, as I know some of you feel, then I urge you with all my heart, and I'm saying this with complete seriousness, I urge you with all my heart to make doubly plain that your view of Scripture is of the highest order. Now, this is very important because many of those taking an unbalanced feminist position today are also the ones devaluing the Scripture. Therefore, you must make sure this is not your position and the reason you're doing what you're doing, or you're really going to hurt the Church of Christ. A few years ago, to say the Bible is God's Word, the only infallible rule of faith and practice was sufficient. That is no longer so, for liberalism has changed. Not too long ago, liberalism was a proud rationalism with thought it could separate the supernatural from the historical Jesus. Not too many years ago. That has ended. Now, whether it is from the old liberal side, such as the Christian century, or the shifting ranks of those who still call themselves evangelicals, but who are diminishing the scripture, liberalism has taken on the existential methodology. I spoke this afternoon at length about that, but it simply means this, that what they say, whether it's coming from the old liberal side, such as the Christian century, which has changed its position uh, on its liberalism, or the evangelicals who are weakening the scripture, what they say is the Bible is a religious authority in some sense, or a religious authority, but it has errors in it when it touches history the thing, and uh, the cosmos, those things of interest to science. And in doing this, this is the existential methodology and is the mark of the liberalism uh, of our day. And this is what they urge. This is the new form of liberalism, following the general secular existential thought form of our day. And again, those of you who were here this afternoon, you remember I extended those thoughts. The old liberals now follow this path, and so do the compromising evangelicals. I beg you, in your doctrinal statement, to say something like, doesn't have to be these words, but something like, the Bible is without error, not only when it speaks of religious things, but also when it speaks of history and the cosmos. Somehow, people have to understand that's what you mean. That's what they must understand of what you mean. 
We learned a hard lesson at the Lausanne Conference on evangelism, a very hard lesson. Partly at my urging, the statement on the Bible was made stronger than was originally supposed to have been given, and uh, what was said was something of the nature uh, that the Bible is without error in all the area it touches upon. Now, those holding the existential methodology simply got around this by saying the Bible did not mean to teach with authority anything on, when, on history or uh, where the Bible touches on the cosmos and things of interest to science. That was their escape gat, uh, gat, uh, hatch, and they used it. They used it. It's the way they used it. Now, really, I would say this would be very close to being dishonest for the simple reason that they knew very well the intent of the committee and of the Congress but it was their escape hatch. Therefore, to be safe, it must be made clear that what you mean, as I believe you do mean, is that the Bible is not only a religious authority, but an authority of everything, all matters, that it touches on, and it must be spelled out somewhere, somehow, that this means that it's not only a religious authority, but it also is errorless when it speaks of history and speaks of the things of which science has an interest. If you do not do so, you will not have laid a base for what you have paid such a high price to escape from. You've paid a tremendous price, many of you, for what you've escaped from. But if you don't lay such a base, then I fear that 10 or 20 years down the road, you will find the next generation will have the sorrow of having to face these same things all over again. Liberalism's changed and you must meet the challenge of making plain that you're rejecting the modern liberalism and not the older forms of liberalism. Now, Christianity's rich. It's not poor. Christianity is gorgeously rich. It gives us the truth of all reality and it touches on all of life. It does lead to individual salvation, and how thankful we should be that it does lead to individual salvation through the taking away of our true moral guilt on the basis of the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. How thankful we should be that there is an individual salvation. But while our salvation is individual, it is not egotistically individualistic. And all too often we've made it that. It is individual, but it's not to be seen as egotistically individualistic. Peter said something absolutely startling in Acts 3, 20 and 21. This came, of course, immediately after Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And we find Peter saying this, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ. Remember, Christ has come and gone. But the times of refreshing may come, the times of refreshing and may come from the Lord, and he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Do you, do you listen? Do you know what you're listening to? The Lord Jesus Christ died to take away all the abnormalities that has come because of the fall. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for the total restoration purchased by the blood of the Son of God. What are these abnormalities that came uh, when man revolted against God? What was born down in man's dominion 
as man revolted and all under his dominion was spoiled and twisted and made abnormal. Well, Christ died to restore all the abnormalities caused by the fall. Now, first, that's my personal separation from God on the basis of my personal guilt. Then there is the separation of the soul and body at death. And never forget that the Bible says this is absolutely abnormal and death is an enemy. Death is abnormal. Death is an enemy. The separation of soul and body to death, that's the second abnormality. Then it's to heal our psychological separations from ourselves. And these things too are abnormal. God didn't make us to have our psychological problems that we have today. And just say very firmly, Christianity, uh, being a Christian doesn't take away all your psychological problems. It may, it helps, but it doesn't take them all away. There's not a single one of us in this room, including me, who's not skits in some way. <laughs> this is a part of the abnormality. Separation from God on the basis of my guilt, the separation of my soul, the soul and body at death, the psychological separations from ourselves, the sociological separations, which are so terrible in this world, and we not only think of those awful things like Cambodia and the boat people, the awful things happening in Somaliland as the Ethiopians are driving them out and driving them into awful, awful positions of being refugees. It isn't only that. It's the sociological problems that come between the closest and the dearest of family. These are sociological problems, too. These are all abnormalities that came because of the fall, all of them. And then also the separation, our separation from nature. We're separated from nature as we never were meant to be. And uh, we also, nature is separated from nature. Now these are the separations that came because of man's fall. And these are abnormal. And these are the things which Christ died that one day on the basis of his shed blood, Every one of these abnormalities will be cured. And you heard that last night if you listened to that beautiful presentation of the Romans 8 passage. There's coming a day when it'll all be restored. It'll all be restored. Now Christ died to do these things and will on the basis of his death when he's returned. Our personal conversion and future full salvation, our personal conversion and full salvation is a part of the total restoration. Happily, it is individual, but it is not egotistically individualistic. It's a part of a total restoration, and that's the way we ought to see it. And that is what Christ came to do. And what an affirmation of life and a calling this gives us now. Not perfectly, as when Christ returns, but looking to Christ for our daily help, the good news, in quotation marks, the good news, we have is to teach and to do our best to substantially bring healing in all these areas now. I don't understand Christians who find a tension between leading individual people to Christ and working to heal these other abnormalities. I don't think they understand what the Christianity teaches. I don't find any tension, not a bit. They fit together. They're a part of the good news. To lead people individually to Christ, to do our best to offset the physical results of the fall in people's bodies, 
to do all we can to heal the psychological abnormalities, to struggle at any cost to cure the sociological ills, including the breakdown in our total culture and law, and to do all we can to heal our separation from nature and from nature to nature. It's all one piece. It's all one piece. It's all part of that glorious good news. What makes it possible is that there's a meaning to it all because God exists. And there's a healing in the death of Jesus, which will have perfection. But it's our call to work in all these areas now and not see them as splintered in one uh, intention against another. It will be perfect when Christ returns. And the good news includes doing all we can to heal these abnormalities to some real extent now. What a calling. Isn't that tremendous? What a calling. How poor we often are when Christianity is so rich. What a calling. We need, uh, with this calling, we do not need to have a fixed plastic smile on our face as though everything is fine in this world now. Everything's not fine in this world. Everything's not fine. The injustices, cancer, sickness, death, just name it. The terrible ugliness and abnormality in contrast to what God made this world to be. We don't have to put on a plastic, plastic smile and say everything's fine. The Bible says everything isn't fine. The thing that gave me the key was when it suddenly dawned on me what happened at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus stood there and he cried. He cried at the abnormality of physical death. But the Greek says something else that doesn't come across so well in the English, and it's better in the New International Translation than the King James, but even so, it's not as strong as the Greek, because the Bible says Jesus not only wept, but he was angry. And he who is God could be angry at the abnormality of death and all the other abnormalities without being angry at himself. When I saw that, I was free. We do not need a plastic smile, paste to our face in a world that makes our Lord cry and be angry. But in, also on the other side, we do not leave, li, need to live uh, in this abnormal world in an area of despair either. The world is in despair. But we don't have to despair. We don't have to have the plastic smile and we do not need to despair. There is coming a total restoration, and we have a calling to bring substantial healing now. So on one hand, it's not the plastic smile. On the other hand, it is not despair. And I could go on and quote for a half hour the French poets and philosophers, not only French, but especially that German, who live in absolute despair as they look at the world. No, no, we do not need to live in despair because there is coming a time when the restoration will be complete. And we have a calling right now to do everything we can, looking to God for our help, for us to bring substantial healing in this whole area of need. Now then, how wonderful, therefore, our Christianity is. But in conclusion, I want to end here. How wonderful our Christianity is. But, 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 Without the objective existence of the Creator and his earless, loving teaching in this book, 
not only in that which men call religious, but also where it touches on history and on the cosmos. Without his existence and without this loving teaching in this book, without this, forget it. Christianity has no wonder. Christianity is nothing without his existence and this earless communication which he has given us. Without this earless book, the truth is gone. And any joy that we might stir up within ourselves would be only one more subjective trip with no basis of truth to rest it upon. All Christianity isn't just that. Christianity rests on the objective existence of God and his revelation in this wonderful, earless communication he has given to us, covering the whole of reality. I beg of you, commissioners, members of this new denomination, at your beginning, that in writing and in reality, it is made clear in some way, with no possible escape hatch, that this is your view of the Bible. I'm deeply touched, but I, let us say together, please God, we will not just listen, we will go out from this place, and this will be our position, and we live this way by God's grace, regardless of the cost. That's what God looks for. Thank you for your clapping, but let's be sure that as we now sit down, uh, that this is the burden, not the clapping only, though thank you for it, it's nice. <laughs> but having said this, let us be a, a point of commitment of something absolutely steadfast, regardless of the cost. 